You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. Good morning, everyone. If you're a guest with us, welcome here. It's good to have you. If you have not turned in your Bible yet, please turn to Mark chapter 14. And if you're new to the church and um, you are interested in finding out more about citizens and maybe even getting into a missional family, maybe you even know enough about that that you want to service, today we are having a Welcome to Citizens class after the service. So um, it's going to be in the back room. So if you go right to the end of that hall, take a right and then go right to the end, you'll find some people there, and we'll take a little bit of time after the service just to give you a little explanation and answer some questions. We are in Mark chapter 14, and just so you know, for the rest of Mark here, we're probably about four or five Sundays out, we're going to be having questions that go with um, each sermon. They're going to be on our website. There are four missional families to use if they need them, or they're even for you and your personal use to study a little bit deeper. So just want to let you know that every Sunday they will be posted on there. Even if the sermon isn't posted yet, the questions will be there. This passage of scripture that we are entering into is what's known as the passion narrative. It is a couple chapters that give us an in-depth look into Jesus as he steps into a dark and dangerous and scary time. And so it literally happens, a lot of it, within the space of darkness, okay? There's like dark feeling and dark presence and uh, evil darkness is coming in and physical darkness is there as well. And it should be, um, we should find some identification in it, not Exactly, but there should be some identification in it because all of us will face uh, moments of sorrow and darkness. Whether we like to admit it or whether we can remember it happening in our past or we can see it coming in the future, there is some sort of darkness waiting for us at different points in our lives. I'm right now reading a book. Uh, It's a collection of a bunch of sermons from Chinese pastors that were given at a conference in 2021, so kind of in the middle of the pandemic and when things were really in a rough state. And one of them tells a story of how in their city, there's a street that is filled with fortune tellers. So you just go down this street and there's just, you know, booth after booth after booth of fortune tellers and everybody's there, big lineups. So these seminarian students decided to set up their own booth. They're like, hey, we can tell the future too. So they set up their booth and it's, it's, it has a sign that says, 100% guarantee we're going to tell you what the future holds. And the lineup gets long, right? And so they sit in there and they let people in and people come in anticipating. They're like, okay, tell me my future. You know this 100%. And in the seminarians, and I don't know if they did this in like a monotone voice or something, but basically it was like, you're going to die. (laughs) If not now, then in a couple years or maybe in 10 years, but I can guarantee you this, within 100 years, 
you're going to die. And I don't know if the people left like happy, but basically the seminarian said, if we're wrong, come back to us, you know, and we will pay you back all the money that you have just paid here. But here's the reality for the people that were listening there and the people sitting in this room right now is sorrow and darkness is coming. And like Harold just read in the confession, the disciples, when they heard Jesus talking about his death, and he had been alluding to this over and over and over again, reminding them, saying, this is coming. There's like, my death is coming. There's some sort of darkness that's coming. You don't even know about it yet, but it's coming. And what did they say? We can handle this. We got this. We are with you. And Peter says, right till the end, even if you die, I'm here. I'm by your side. So as we look at the passion narrative this morning, just a section of it, I want us to kind of get in that space that Jesus is in, a space of sorrow and a space of betrayal. And then ultimately, the last couple of verses are going to land us in a place of honest reflection on our own vulnerabilities before God and each other. So look at Mark chapter 14, verse 32, just a couple of verses in to see the sorrow that Jesus is facing. Verse 32 says this, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus here is, the word actually that's being used is he is astonished. He is wide-eyed to what is coming his way. Now, as we've been looking over the last weeks, we've seen that Jesus is like unflappable. People come and they're asking him questions. They're peppering him with all sorts of theological questions and, and debatable things. There's pressure from religious leaders that are coming. And he is like, cool and calm and can just answer them directly. Now here, he is wide-eyed and astonished. And I think the HSB, or sorry, the HCSB uh, translation puts it better. It says this, that he is deeply distressed and horrified. That's the word that is actually coming out here. He is horrified by what is coming around the corner. Now why is that? There have been plenty of people in history who have faced death. They knew death was coming for whatever reason, persecution, injustice, whatever it was. And with great courage and dignity, they were able to like face that. There's like examples of people who are on a post, tied up, it's about to be lit, and they're singing hymns and they're praising God. So what is happening to Jesus here? That he is looking at what is coming down this passion narrative. And he says, I am horrified by this. I'm in shock by what is coming around the bend. Well, I'll tell you what's coming for Jesus. What we're going to be looking at over the next weeks is the, what the Old Testament calls the cup of wrath. It is the anger of God towards sin that is coming around the bend. And we sang about it in, in a few of the songs even this morning. That what Jesus is seeing is the sinfulness of man, as God sees it now, is going to come and lay and be put on his shoulders. 
And as he sees that, he is horrified by what that actually looks like. Because listen to these other verses as they describe what it was that Jesus was doing on the cross. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those are amazing verses. Our sin, the brokenness of the world, is put onto Jesus, is realized in the death of Jesus. And this is what Jesus is looking at. He's staring at, he sees it coming down the in a number of days into his life. And so the word is correct that Jesus sees a horror before him. But listen, this is a troubling doctrine or theological idea for us to get our head around, that the, the anger of God towards sin would be laid on Jesus, someone who is innocent, or even with the idea that God could be angry or that the wrath of God would come out. That's an idea that often doesn't square well with us. We're like, we like the, the love part of Jesus, right? We like the love Jesus. That's the one that we like, not the one that is going to now take the wrath of God. But I think it's often because we bring to the text and to words our ideas. Like we bring into the word anger usually like a wrong view of anger. We bring in some tainted or some misguided views of it. And maybe, I know I have myself, maybe it's my Mennonite pacifism that comes out that I can only think of anger in bad, negative ways. I don't know. You know I'm just thinking anger equals bad. But here, within the scriptures, we actually see that the anger that God expresses towards sin and its destruction is actually rooted in love. The love of God forces him to show anger towards sin and all the wrong that is done. And we even sometimes experience that in this world. I know I did even this summer. It was August, late, it was like 10, 10.30, I was getting ready for bed. And it was hot, I know that, because the window was open. And I'm getting ready for bed, and I heard some noises out back. And we live in, like, we live in suburbia. Okay? There's a bunch of houses packed in, but there's like a walking path there as well. And so I leaned up to the window, and I looked out of the window, and it's all black, just dark out there. And suddenly I'm hearing, out of some house somewhere, like terrible arguing. Two people screaming at each other. And one sounded like an adult. One sounded like maybe like a teenager or something. So I'm, I'm literally leaning up against my windowsill, um, trying to look like I'm looking. Is there like, you know, I'm not a peeping Tom, okay? But I'm trying to look. I'm like, where is this coming from? And the first thing I felt was just deep sadness. As I'm listening to two people in a household, I'm assuming parent and a child argue with each other. But I'll tell you the next thing I felt, and I don't feel this often. I should probably feel it more often. I felt anger within me. I felt like this is wrong for an adult to talk to a teenager like this, and for a teenager 
to talk to an adult like this. This is wrong. And I also thought, I don't even know what is causing this. Like, there might be some reason. I don't know what. I can't think of what. My imagination can't put it together. But there's some reasons behind what's happening here, and I can't solve it. But in that moment, I think what I felt was actually like anger that was rooted in love. Desiring to see some, something come together, some wholeness come together from that. But let me tell you, God comes to sin and feels anger towards sin, and he's actually able to do something about it. I'm not. I mean, I'm so limited and fallible. I don't even know which neighbor it was. But God knows all the details. He knows all the brokenness. He knows everything behind the story. It still brings up within him anger towards sin. But he's going to do something about it. Tim Keller puts it this way. The problem is that if you want a loving God, if you only want that, you have to have an angry God. Please think about it. Loving people can get angry, not in spite of their love, but because of it. In fact, the more closely and deeply you love people in your life, the angrier you can get. Now, it's an anger that's rooted in love, not an anger that's rooted in sin. And so God in his perfection is looking at the sin around him. And the wrath of God towards sin is coming down on Jesus. And Jesus sees that. And Jesus looks at it and says, wow, that's scary. That's a horror. And thankfully, you and I will never have to bear the weight of the sin of the world and we can't even bear the weight of our own sin, okay? So just be put at ease. What Jesus is going through, we will not ever have to go through. But we do go through sorrow in this life. We do go through pain and we go through darkness. First Timothy 3 reminds us that if you follow Jesus, persecution is coming your way. It doesn't say maybe. It says it's coming your way. In some form, as you follow Jesus and you kind of buck up against the norms of maybe your family, of your neighborhood, of your workplace, not because you're a jerk, not because you've been like, in, you know, terrible to people, but because you've stood up for Christ and for a life that is marked by him, persecution is most likely coming your way at some point. And so sorrow is also a part of our lives. And when we run into that sorrow, when we feel that pain of whatever it is, there may be times where we need to do something. We need to talk to someone to maybe bring some resolution to a problem. We may need to go to a counselor because we've, you know, we've got some problems in our mind or there's something that has to be worked on. But before all those things, what we need to do is follow Jesus' example. And what does he do here? He prays. Jesus prays. He sees the horror that's before him. He sees the darkness that is coming. And his first, his first next step is prayer. And we've been seeing this throughout this series in Mark. And one of the reasons why we studied this gospel to begin with was to see what does Jesus' life look like and how then can we follow his life. 
We talk about the spiritual disciplines of scripture and of being with God's people and of prayer and how can we bring those disciplines into our lives so that when the sorrow, when the darkness comes into our life, when it doesn't just go away, we have something that carries us through it. And so we come to prayer. Look at verse 35. Let me read 35 and 36. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here's quickly four things that we can see from Jesus' example of prayer that we can actually bring into our own prayer life. And the first is this, bringing in solitude. Making space in our life for prayer to actually happen. We are all very busy with all kinds of things that we're doing, whether it's work or things around the home or kids or friends or activities. So all of that exists. And then we were all extra busy by all the things that we bring into our lives, all the different forms of media and whatever it is, you can think of your own list. And so everything in our world is fighting against this idea of solitude, being alone with God. Henry Nouwen puts it this way, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Now listen, we don't have to go to a monastery, you know, we don't have to create a cave in our basement, you know, where we get away from everyone. Jesus is in the garden and the disciples are with him. From the text, if you read it, it's like they're nearby. They may be 10 feet away. They may be 20 feet away. He has not gone completely alone to a cabin to be all by himself. If you can do that, that's wonderful. But you don't have to wait for the perfect setup to be in solitude with God. You can do it with your roommates in the house. You can do it with your kids in the house. You may have to hide in the bathroom, I don't know, you know, to get away from them. But you have to find some space where you can actually connect with God solitude. The second is this. 36a says that Jesus calls him Abba, Father. So intimacy with God. Jesus verbalizes this relationship with God, which is actually new. You don't see a lot of this in the Old Testament. It is here as Jesus is in the physical presence. He's in this world. He is expressing in words a connection to God the Father. Do you have that kind of close connection with God the Father? Maybe you bring to that relationship even some history that is negative towards the idea of Father. Maybe you didn't have a good example. And so when you come to prayer or when you come to God to think of him as Abba Father is something that you're like, I need growth in that area. But here we see Jesus comes close and is intimate with God, his Father. And then he is, number three, he is honest with God, right? What does he say in verse 36? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Jesus is like, this is the perfect time. It's dark, sorrow. Now can you just remove it? His, his earthly perspective You've got 
Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, here now we see his earthly perspective is like, I would much rather not go through what we're about to go through. And so what does he do? He doesn't just like hide that from God the Father. He says it. He uses words. The things that he's struggling with, the things that he doesn't like, the things that he doesn't want to happen in his life, he says that to God. Do you bring that level of honesty in your prayers to God? It's funny because we all know that God knows everything. He knows all of our thoughts. And yet we don't even say the things that are deeply bothering us to God. We think like if we don't say it, he's not going to know it. But we know that he knows it. And so we play this kind of mental game rather than just following the example of Jesus and telling God everything. 100% honesty with God. But then the fourth one is maybe the most difficult of, of all, and it is openness. He says this, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus says, God, you're my father. We're in close relationship. If I'm honest, God, I don't want this horror to come. But ultimately he says, whatever you want, God, that's what I want. And those can be some of the hardest words to say. When we've been honest with God, Lord, I need some help in this area. God, I need relief in this area. God, this addiction is just won't go away. This mental health will not disappear, God. Like, I need some relief from this, from this pain. To say the words, your will be done, can be some of the hardest words we ever say. But they also lay us in the hands of God, at his mercy. To let him be God and not us. And I think part of the reason that Jesus gives us this example and the reason that God even gives us prayer is because our own hearts need convincing. And so our prayer is actually an avenue for God to go back and forth. We tell God something and God starts to confirm some things in our hearts and it's just like back and forth, back and forth. And sometimes it happens quickly and at other times it's just like years and years of back and forth, back and forth. Communion with God, intimacy with God, honesty, communication, and ultimately, God, your will be done. And so Jesus... goes from answering questions in the temple to seeing the horror and feeling the sorrow before him. But it gets a little bit worse, and it gets into betrayal here. Look at verse 43, where the betrayal of Jesus is narrated for us. Verse 43 says this, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Here comes Judas into the garden with some Roman soldiers, and he is going to betray Jesus. I don't know if you've ever gone, probably some of you have gone on like a missions trip, or maybe you've worked with some people. When you spend that kind of 
time with people, you really like bond with them. You get to know them well. You are hanging out, spending hour after hour doing all kinds of things together. You're seeing each other, you know, in interesting and funny situations at times and some hard times. And so here is Judas, who had spent years with Jesus. Think of all the hours they spent together. And everybody knew Judas had his problems, right? Judas, you know, he had some issues, and he was taking some money out of the pouch. Everybody knew that, but it was Judas. You know, it's fine. We'll work with him. He's still with us. He's still our man. And here comes Judas now to betray Jesus. Betrayal is painful. And betrayal by someone who is really near to you, someone who is close to you, who you've bonded with, for good or for bad reasons, you've bonded with these people. Betrayal is painful. David in Psalm 55, in that psalm, he is expressing his heart, and he's actually expressing the pain of betrayal that he had experienced in his own life. And so in Psalm 55, verse 12, it says this, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from them. So David's like, you know, if it's my enemy and they're coming against me, that's not a big deal. It's to be expected. But then in verse 13, he says, But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. David is saying, I've felt the deepest kind of betrayal possible. Someone who is close to me. Someone who is near. Someone who is deep in relationship. Someone, in David's case, who communed in the temple with him. Closeness. And David says, there is no kind of pain like that. And our natural response then is, our natural response to that is somehow some sort of payback has to happen. That's the natural response. There's got to be some sort of payback. And most of the movies we watch kind of show that. The hero, something happens to the hero, and then he eventually comes back around, and he just destroys the betrayer, or he just does something really bad so that they can pay for it. I don't know if you've ever seen the the two-time Academy Award-winning movie, Toy Story 3. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that one, okay? It is a movie filled with ups and downs, okay? But there's one character in there, Lotso Hugalot. Remember that one? The one in the beginning, you're like, Lotso seems so cute. And I think they even sell them where you can like hug him and he smells like nice and everything. And you're just like, this is the nicest bear possible. But then not too long into the movie, you see like this dark side of Lotso come out. And you're like, oh, Lotso is actually evil, you know? You're like, I thought he was so nice, but now he's actually evil. And even in that movie, all of us are suddenly rooting for how can Lotso go down? How can he just somehow get creamed by the hero? And by the end of the movie, From five-year-old to 90-year-old, we're all smiling when Lotso is tied to the front grill of a truck. And we're like, he is going to suffer and eat bugs for the rest of his days. That's how we would naturally think that things should happen to the betrayers. They should get to eat it. 
They should have their horror before them. We naturally are inclined towards some forms of violence, actually, towards people. We probably wouldn't use that language on ourselves, but some forms of violence, the things that we say to people, the posture that we take towards someone, or literally the violence that we would like to do towards people who have been betrayers of us. It's painful. It brings out the worst in us. And if you look at Jesus' teaching from beginning to end, you see no violence, no promotion of violence. If you stand on the side of any kind of violence, language, posture, activity, you have the whole New Testament that stands opposed to that perspective. But it's the natural one. It's the one that we all kind of turn to. It's the one that fulfills some sort of gratification that we long for. But Jesus here... In this text, and in the story that's even broader than in Mark's gospel, does this. First he does this. Look at verse 49. He trusts in God's will again. Verse 49. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Jesus is like, you could have grabbed me any time, but now you're using Judas, a betrayer, to come and seize me. And he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. If this is in God's plan, if this is in God's will, let it happen. So Jesus in that moment, when the betrayer is before him, doesn't choose violence, doesn't choose any sort of antagonism or anything like that. He says, let God's will be accomplished. But second, he also extends grace to Judas. Now it's not recorded as clearly in Mark's gospel here, but in Matthew's gospel it says this. In Matthew it says, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Jesus calls Judas friend. He extends grace to Judas in the moment of betrayal. It's happening in real time before Jesus. And Jesus says, and he calls Judas friend. He extends grace. It's like one more time Jesus is saying to Judas, here's an opportunity, Judas, I'm calling you friend. Grace is still being extended to you. But if we know Judas's life and we know the story, we know that he doesn't take this one last chance. But this is why we call the gospel good news, because Jesus loves betrayers. Jesus still extends grace to betrayers, to people who would stab him in the back. He still extends grace. And listen, most of us, most of us think we wouldn't do that. We look at Judas and think, he's bad. Like, he's real bad. He would do that. But look at verse 50. Look at verse 50. And they all left him, left Jesus, and fled. Everybody's gone. Gonzo. Yeah, Judas is the one who kissed Jesus and betrayed him directly, but everybody else is gone. And let me tell you, we're all in verse 50. We're all in verse 50. You might think you'd be better on the spot, and maybe you would be, okay? But I think the majority of us are in verse 50. We're betrayers as well, but the good news is that Jesus loves betrayers. He gives us chance after chance after chance. He comes back and he says, friend, 
And so even in his sorrow, even in his betrayal, Jesus extends grace and the good news is spoken. And then we come to, we'll end with these verses, verses 51 and 52. These are kind of odd verses, okay? These are interesting verses. Listen to these. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Some scholars think that this is actually Mark writing himself into the narrative. They believe that Mark, you know, if you've been here, we know that Mark has written down this account, most likely from Peter's retelling of all the events that Peter and Jesus went through. But at this point, it's, it's guessed that it's a disciple and it's possibly Mark. And the reason why they guess that is because Mark would probably have been with them in Acts 12. It says that Mark had a home in Jerusalem that the disciples used. And so the theory goes that possibly they had been in Mark's home in Jerusalem and they had come from Jerusalem to the garden. And Mark just kind of quickly went. He didn't grab all of his jackets and stuff. So he's just got this linen cloth. And then when the heat comes, when the Romans come, they try to grab him because he's actually with Jesus and he slips out of his linen cloth and he's gone. He's running naked, man. He is running and where does he go? I don't know, you know, like where does this guy go? Does he go back to Jerusalem, into the city? Does he just hide out and hope to find some leaves or something? We have no idea. We just got two verses here, okay? But actually... Love these two verses. Not just because it shows a naked guy running around, okay? But it shows the, the honesty and the vulnerability of the disciples. There is something really vulnerable about nakedness, isn't there? It's actually used as a weapon against people. And it will be used against Christ in just a few days when he's hung on the cross with no clothes it's also an experience of extreme vulnerability. We have clothes on for a reason. And there's times in our life, usually as we age, where nature forces its humility upon us. I remember we got a tour once when uh, Chartwell was new. It was generally new, and we knew someone who was in there, and we went and had lunch with him, and he gave us a tour of the place, okay? So we're walking around, we had lunch, and we get, got a tour, and then he brings us to the bathroom. Two words, okay? The bathroom. The room where they actually bathe people. At that age, when you come in, bring you in, bathe you. And he was funny because he was kind of humorous about it. He was like, yeah, you know, the first couple of times, a little weird having a young lady bathe you, but I'm kind of used to it by now, you know. Age has a way of doing that, right? Whether it's an infant or whether it's an old person, it humbles us, strips us away. And that day is coming for all of us, some sort of humbling, whether it's in a hospital room or it's in a sick bed at home or it's in some sort of dark part of our lives, it's coming. But Mark here is saying, you don't have to wait for your physical body to humiliate and to humble you. 
You don't have to wait for vulnerability to be forced upon you. Mark is saying here, he's putting into print for us. This is what Mark is saying. When Jesus needed me most, I ran. When Jesus needed me to stay, I was gone. Gone to the point where my clothes were off me. I mean, nobody was holding me down. I was running away. And Mark puts into the text here such a level of vulnerability and honesty that it's, it's shocking to us. His willingness to put in print his own vulnerability to say, I ran. But he's, he's telling us this for a reason. It's in here for a reason. It's not just a little anecdote, right? It's not just a little bit of side information. He's saying, in the darkest moment of Jesus, I ran, but Jesus stayed. Jesus stayed. And the reason that I'm putting this in you is firstly because it happened. This is real history. This is a real story. If you're making up some sort of a myth or some sort of a story that you want the world to believe in, you don't put these verses in there. This happened, and Mark's saying, I'm telling you this because I can face my weakness now because Jesus stayed, and everything rests on Jesus. I can be humiliated. I can be vulnerable. I can be honest before God. I can be honest before you, the audience, because everything rests not on Mark, not on me. It all rests on Jesus' faithfulness right to the end. So the question for us then to conclude here is, will we take the position of vulnerability and humility? Will we be humbled before each other and before God? In the book After Doubt by A.J. Swoboda, he writes about a friend of his named Leah. And Leah was an atheist, and she converted to Christianity in college. And she talks about being in college and being on the debate team and debating with people ideas and thoughts. And, and in her mind, you know, it was always about winning. A debate is always about winning. But she, she came to discover over time that the debate club itself wasn't even solely focused on winning. They were focused on something more than that. So she, writes, she says this. Rather, she said, this uh, union, this political debate union, which followed the Yale political union rules, rather, they said, can someone be humbled enough to lose a debate to what she calls being broken on the floor? And then it says this. A good debater is so committed to the truth that they are willing to be broken by its presence. They're willing to lose faith to protect truth. And so as we look at the narrative in our text this morning, as we see it for what it is, Mark is putting before us this case of Jesus who would go to the cross for our sins, would face the horror, the weight of our sins. And Mark says, I'm willing to put in here anything that is relevant to the story that actually happened so that you will ponder. And ultimately, each of us would be, as the Yale political debate team says, broken on the floor before Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this text, for all the things that we see in it. Thank you for... 
the example of these disciples who are flawed individuals, God, and yet your grace is extended to them over and over and over again. Lord, may we be broken as well, humbled in spirit, vulnerable to each other, but ultimately vulnerable to you, our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.